Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. You know, when I read your first book, um, Algorithms to Live By, the, the fact that, that really s- stuck with me was about the optimal stopping rule and why the best time to stop looking for whatever you're seeking, whether it's a new apartment or hiring someone, is 37% into your search. But uh, but I loved the story you told that it didn't actually go so well for an engineer who tried to use that to manage his love life. Yeah, this is the story of um, Carnegie Mellon operations researcher Michael Trick who, when he was a graduate student, uh, found himself in a serious relationship and was starting to ask himself that question of, how do I know if this is the one? You know, should I, should I commit um, or should I, you know, sort of keep, keep waiting and, and see what else might be out there? And he recognized, being an operations researcher, that there was this connection between dating and the so-called optimal stopping problem or the sometimes known as the secretary problem and the secretary problem has this famous solution which is that you should wait until uh you're 37 percent of the way through the interval of time and after that point be willing to commit to the the first option or the person or whatever you see that's better than everything you saw in the first 37 percent and so <laughs> um he you know I, I don't necessarily recommend that uh listeners do this but he just applied this interval directly to his kind of romantic life and said, okay, I'm hoping to meet someone between, let's say, 18 and 40. Uh, 37% of that is like 26 years old, and he was 26 years old at the time. And so the math told him exactly what to do. He proposes on the spot, and uh, his girlfriend shoots him down. So <laughs> that is a uh, reminder that real life doesn't always obey the um, the assumptions that we make in order to model it. Um, and I think that's a that's a very, very helpful lesson to carry forward. <laughs> it certainly is. I'm talking with Brian Christian, who is the author of uh, a number of best-selling books, including The Most Human Human, uh, Algorithms to Live By, which I which we just spoke about. And his newest book is called The Alignment Problem, which I've just finished reading, and it's a fantastic book. Uh, Brian, it's great to have you with, uh, with us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what was your personal journey into this? Um, because you, you're an unusual, uh, you come from an unusual background in that you're you're obviously highly technical. You have a gift with language. Uh, what made you want to start writing about uh, really the application of these technologies to everyday life and and to human society? Yeah, I mean, so. Broadly speaking, yeah, I have a very eclectic background. Um, I went to a technical uh, high school, kind of a math and science pre-engineering high school, um, but ended up along the way starting to have this hunch that maybe what I actually wanted to do in the world was to be a writer. Um, And that carried through um, when I was an undergrad, I studied computer science and philosophy, but I did my thesis with the creative writing department. Um, so I was able to take advantage of a very unique program um, that my school offered. Um, and then I ended up going to graduate school uh, for writing, but the entire time continued my you know, obsessive uh, fascination with kind of the, the intersection of computer science and philosophy. And for me, I mean, I feel, I feel lucky to have been born at the right time because those two fields are on a collision course. I mean, 
everyone going back to Alan Turing, you know, people have seen obviously the connections um, of what computer science offers us about human condition. Um, but I think it is really now as we live in kind of this dawning age of AI that um, we're really starting to see computer science collide with um, with the humanities, with social science, with philosophy, with psychology. And for me, that um, it's just a, a way of addressing what I think are some of the most fundamental questions about being human, right? What, is it, what does it mean to have a mind? What does it mean to make rational decisions? Um, what does it mean to you know, per, pursue certain values ethically, whatever that might be? I think in so many ways, computer science offers us a way of answering those questions um, with, with rigor, uh, with, with a level of precision. Um, but the questions themselves are, are deeply human. So for me, that has been a lifelong fascination. And that's been my, um, my subject matter, my chief subject matter as a writer. And it's sort of inexhaustible in some ways, you know, where it keeps keeps going you definitely right there is a fascinating convergence now between the social sciences and and um technology and 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 ai um and i I think prior to this machine age you know we looked to the animal world for a reflection uh and and for us to define who we were as humans it's just interesting now uh, and you explore this in your new book the degree to which you know by looking at machines and the way they comprehend the world and concepts of machine intelligence is actually a mirror for us to understand our own. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I view AI as kind of taking a 2,500 year old philosophical question and, and upending it. Um, as you say, you know, philosophers, you know, certainly in the Western canon have been obsessed with this question of what is it that makes humans distinct, special, unique. And they have answered that question, as you said, often through this kind of negative process of beginning with the animal kingdom and subtracting everything that our animal kin can do. And then whatever you're left with must be the essence of what it is to be human. And if you pursue that line of thinking, which is what Aristotle did and to some degree Descartes, um, you end up with something like the, the capacity for deductive, you know, syllogistic um, reasoning, right? That sort of abstract, um, if this, then that reasoning, which I think the great irony is that this is exactly <laughs> what computers do better than we can do. And so from a late 20th, early 21st century perspective, that's not where I think most of us will want to really pl- stake the flag, right, of, of the, what it means to be human. And I think, um, you know, to your, to your point about where we find ourselves now in terms of the machine learning um, age, if you want to say it that way, that we're in, um, I think that as we start to develop systems that absorb human culture in in a very indirect way, right? We're not directly programming them uh, the way that we did, you know, in classical, even classical AI, right? Um, we're simply with many of these systems just giving a giant data set of examples and saying generalized from this, this is the kind of thing that we want you to do. And that might be labeled images. And we say, this is a cat, this is a dog, or this is a cancerous lesion, this is a benign lesion. Um, It could be a sort of unsupervised text system where we just say, learn how to fill in the blanks in a sentence in a way that can predict what word goes there. Um, We're giving over essentially human norms 
human ontology, human culture, and then we get it reflected back to us in this very concrete, occasionally surreal fashion. Um, these systems often are both uncanny in what they can do and all, also striking in what they fail to do and the ways that they go off the rails. And, you know, this is, this is where the term, the alignment problem comes from. You know, often this, that's, this, a, that's a perfect segue. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you, can, can you tell us what the alignment problem is in a nutshell? Yeah. So this refers to, you know, with any machine learning system, you know, you have this basic recipe where you give a series of examples, you have some kind of objective that you want the system to learn from these examples and then be able to generalize to new situations that it hasn't been in before. Um, and in any situation like that, um, you hope that the system learns the things you want it to learn, um, is predictable and safe in the way that it behaves when you actually let it loose in the real world. Um, but it might not be. And this has been a concern within the field of AI going back to Norbert Wiener in 1960, <clears throat> excuse me, um, writing this great essay called the the moral consequences of automation where he writes um, if we use to achieve our purposes a mechanical uh, appliance with which we cannot interfere once we have begun uh, we had better hope that the purpose put into the machine is the purpose which we truly desire uh, and not some colorful imitation of it um, and despite the fact that this has loomed in the background for at this point you know 50 something years it is really in the last five years, I would say, that the field of machine learning has had a kind of wake-up call. Hmm. That we now, with the rise of deep learning in particular, um, but also just as these systems slowly but steadily permeate kind of the decision-making apparatus of the world, whether it's loans or criminal justice, you know, bail prediction or medical diagnostics, et cetera, et cetera, um, we are amassing kind of a collection of horror stories of the ways that these things can go wrong. And there are many people looking further down the line than that and saying, well, you know, we're on a path that takes us to so-called AGI, artificial general intelligence, um, potentially super intelligence systems. Um, when we get to that point, then something like the alignment problem, you know, you train a system to do something, but it's doesn't learn what you think it learns or it doesn't generalize in the way you expect it will um that could be an existential threat that could actually be a species ending um threat and so i got really interested in what i was seeing in the ai research community there was it struck me like two distinct movements that were happening kind of in parallel there was a growing sense of alarm around present day issues of bias transparency fairness um, and things like facial recognition, um, you know, resume sorting systems, medical systems. Um, and there was also this kind of technical safety um, concern that people were starting to have about, um, you know, the field is hitting the gas on trying to get to AGI in, in some ways as quickly as possible. And the safety dimension of this doesn't seem to be as prioritized as just the, you know, raw capability. And that's a dangerous recipe. Um, so for me, that's the origin of the book is I wanted to kind of chronicle this rising movement of people saying, 
we need to really get on top of this before things get out of control. You give the great illustration of the the sorcerer's apprentice, uh, which I love. You know this this idea of the kind of the Disney character conjuring forces that. Uh, you know, he doesn't really understand and scrambling when the broomsticks <laughs> go out of control, which I thought was a wonderful way of illustrating this. But, you know, whether it's um, uh, AI safety or technical issues, I mean, what what really is the complexity about capturing our values and, and norms um, in this respect? Is it is it that essentially we're dealing with, things, with systems that have no no fundamental context of 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 human society, uh, or is it just is it just the degree of complexity of, of systems we don't fully understand? I think it's a little bit of everything, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, there are so many different ways that these sorts of systems can go wrong. I mean, the most obvious one is if um, your training data set doesn't resemble the real world in some way. So, the obvious example here would be you know you train a facial recognition facial recognition system on a data set that you scraped from, let's say, newspapers. Um, and it just so happens that because we live in a society in which um, certain types of people are more likely to appear on the front page of a newspaper than other types of people, let's say you end up with a data set that's like 80% white and 80% male. Um, then you deploy that in the real world in which um, those numbers aren't representative of the population at large, and you start to see these disparate error rates. So that's that's one way. Um, and more generally, this is known as the problem of distribution shift. You train it on a system on distribution A, you run it on distribution B, and all bets are off. Yeah. Um, and so this is something that people are worried about. And you you give the great example of uh, Shirley cards that you know previously have been used to calibrate film. Um, as an example of uh, of something where you sort of have a deeply embedded bias in the way we've essentially trained the system. Um, so you know, okay. and I want to I want to dive into some of these in, in a moment. But you know, just looking at this from another angle, when you talk about AI safety in the future, if we actually declare an AI system to be safe, what, what do you think that's going to mean? Like, you know, what are the sort of the main areas where essentially uh, we've We've cleared a system for for human uh, for the ability to make decisions that impact human livelihood. Um, I think it's going to involve a couple of things. One is likely transparency. So deep neural networks are famously kind of black boxes in that they have inscrutable parameters. You know, m- tens of millions of these adjustable knobs, <laughs> but n- none of them really mean anything. So how do you understand what the system uh, is learning? Uh, there's a lot of really exciting research on um, ways to kind of overcome this black box problem. And we can we can dive into that if you're interested. But I think that's part of it, is having the ability to actually kind of pop the hood and understand the structure of the network, um, or to build a network in a modular way, or to build it in as simple a way as possible to mitigate some of that complexity. So I think that's part of it. I think part of it is we're going to want a system that has a calibrated sense of uncertainty. So when it's operating out of its training distribution, it knows that. And it can say to you, this is what I think is going on, but I really don't know. And so I'd be perfectly happy to defer to you know, humans on this one. Um, 
And uh, I think in, in this case, my mind goes to the, um, the self-driving Uber crash that killed um, the pedestrian Elaine Hertzberg in uh, Arizona in 2018. One of the things that was going on there, there were many things that were going on there. One was the training set didn't include jaywalkers. Hmm. And so the car simply didn't understand that a person could appear in the middle of a road. Uh, it just wasn't prepared for that. Um, the other thing was it had this very brittle um, ontology. Every, every object was either a car, a person, a bicycle, a bicyclist, or you know, a piece of debris. And in this particular case, the woman was walking a bicycle. And so the system couldn't tell, is it a cyclist? Because I'm seeing what looks like a bike, but it's not moving at the speed or in the way that I would expect a cyclist to make it. Um, it also kind of seems like a person. Um, and so part of what was going on in the seconds leading up to the crash was that the system kept changing its mind. It said, I think that's a pedestrian. No, I think that's a cyclist. No, I think that's a piece of debris. No, I think that's a cyclist. No, I think that's a pedestrian. Um, and there were many, many different facets that led up to the actual crash. But I think one of the things that we might demand from a system in order to feel safe about it is that it, when it's changing its mind like that, it should register at some level that it doesn't know. And I think what most of us would do instinctively if you see an object and you can't figure out what's going on is you just take your foot off the gas pedal right? yeah um that there's an instinctive sense of caution that kicks in when you don't know what you're dealing with and i think that's the kind of thing you should expect it, it's like a camera that can't get focus lock you know it, it, it sort of needs to know that there is an error and, and and its inability to find a solution is actually the the, the output <laughs> that's exactly right yeah and we're seeing we're starting to see um you know even in the kind of academic research environment, people developing ways of getting formal measures of uncertainty, you know, calibrated measures of uncertainty, and then plugging that into a system. So, you know, if you had a quad rotor that was flying around and it has like a prediction, uh, a, a collision prediction module, when the uncertainty gets too large in the uh, collision predictor, then just slow down. Um, and so we've seen there are some graduate students at Berkeley that have built some kind of proof of concept systems like this. And I think things like that are going to be really helpful, especially in robotics. But, I mean, the same thing is true. Yeah. In, in, in any domain, really. Let's talk about some of the strategies that people are using to, to try and attack some of these sources of, uh, of, you know, of uncertainty or bias. Uh, you know, you, you gave the example of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Um, yeah. You know, trying to uh, trying to eliminate uh, the, the possible bias in in, in screening candidates. Um, you know, and it, it relates to this question of you know, can you eliminate bias um, by simply removing elements like gender or race information from a system? Can you talk a bit about that that story and, mm -hmm. and I guess how it connects yeah. to that point? Yeah, I, so I think the story of the Boston Symphony Orchestra is very. Um, a very useful allegory hmm. for people in machine learning. So um, this was around the middle of the 20th century. The Boston Symphony Orchestra was uh, beginning to think more seriously about gender uh, representation in the orchestra because um, symphonies were very male dominated at the time. And so they began to institute what we would call a blind audition where there's kind of a screen between the auditioner and the judges. And the idea was that if they can't see who's playing, then they're going to be unable to be swayed by the gender of that person. Um, 
However, this did not produce the desired uh, mitigation of the gender balance in the orchestra. And it was not until someone had the further idea of instructing the auditioners to remove their shoes before walking out onto the parquet floor. Um, suddenly it became very obvious that a judge could hear the difference between a man's flat soled shoe and a woman's high heeled shoe. Um, and it was only after they, uh, they had the auditioners remove their shoes that the, the gender bias uh, began to disappear. And I think this is a very, uh, very useful analogy for the way that a lot of machine learning systems work. Um, a lot of the magic, if you will, of deep learning is the ability to detect these very subtle correlations from data. Um, and anything that correlates with, say, race or gender is going to be picked up on. And so the idea that you could just delete the gender column or the race column from your database and, you know, you're good to go, that's simply not the case, right? It's going to notice things like, um, you know, what, what zip code this person is from or what college they went to or, you know, what their level of education is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there was a case at Amazon where they were using a language model to identify resumes that were quote unquote relevant for given job opening. So they'd post something, they'd get an overwhelming number of applicants, and then they would use machine learning to filter those resumes and essentially triage the ones that were the most, I guess, worthy of, you know, direct human, uh, you know, scrutiny, uh, which, whichever ones would get passed on to the human recruiter. And part of the problem was that the system was doing, um, doing a kind of superficial comparison between the resumes of the applicants and the resumes of people who had been hired into those roles in the past, which were overwhelmingly male. And so when they started you know, um, auditing the system, they began to notice that it was penalizing resumes that had the word women's in them played women's soccer or you went to a women's college um, that would lower your resume because that word didn't appear on the resumes of the existing staff. Well, okay, it's easy enough to delete that and that's fine. They noticed that it was also penalizing words like, you know, field hockey or, you know, hobbies that skewed female as opposed to male. They were able to delete those things. Then they noticed that it is um, assigning essentially extra credit for using turns of phrase that are more, you know, stereotypically masculine. So if you talked about executing a business plan or capturing a market segment, um, these sorts of militaristic metaphors that was being rewarded and up, upranked in the system. Eventually um, they decided there was just no way that they could, you know, purge all of these problematic associations. So, you know, as I, say it in the book, you know, it, it was always hearing the shoes. There was no way that they could prevent it from hearing the shoes. Um, and so they, in this particular case, they just scrapped the system entirely um, and started from scratch. But I think that's a really good illustration of how subtle these problems can get. Well, the, the, this is actually becomes a, a, a critical decision that humans have to make is when is it appropriate to use a system you don't fully understand? And, you know, uh, you know, one of the examples you discuss is the a neural network designed to triage pneumonia pa patients in Pittsburgh. Um, 
And, and and I remember when you were writing about this, you sort of said, you know, someone suggested, would you use this like live? And they said, are you insane? You know, and, and and so uh, this question of when it's appropriate to use a system. Well, actually, let me ask this another way. When, when is it appropriate to use a, a black box system on human beings? Um, that's a really interesting question. So there is this traditional idea that in machine learning, you have a trade-off between accuracy and interpretability. And in fact, there was um, a multi-year program at DARPA called Explainable Artificial Intelligence. And you know the grant proposal for it had this chart with kind of vague unlabeled X and Y axes, but it basically meant like there are technologies that are more capable and then there are technologies that are more understandable, interpretable, and you know never the twain should meet. Um, and so we as researchers need to figure out how to kind of navigate between, you know, along that spectrum. Obviously, as a researcher, the holy grail is to find something that is as accurate, as, you know, uh, competitive, right, with a neural network, but without the downside of this interpretability problem. Um, and there's a lot of really, really interesting research that's happening um, in this domain. Um, so... I think what we're likely to see moving forward are sorts of hybrid systems where maybe at the end of the day, you can't avoid neural networks for things like direct sensory uh, input. You know, if you're just going to actually be building a, a camera that's hooked up to something or direct motor output where you're building something that needs to be able to grasp objects or stay balanced on, you know, unstable terrain. Maybe in those cases, we just need to go with the black box solution. Um, but for the higher level processing, you know, the decision making of should this person be put in the hospital overnight or not, um, we might require uh, that the network be built in such a way that we understand how the decision is getting made. And part of what I think is really exciting about this particular moment is that it it just happens to be the case that there are really promising ways of uh, achieving accuracy equivalent to that of a neural network uh, without having to sacrifice interpretability. Well, it could have easily uh, not been the case, but it just turns out you can get it all. Yeah, because it, it could be an iterative approach, right, where you're using a neural network to basically un uncover hidden features that you'd missed and which you could then almost downsample into a more simple model that, that, That's right. that, that essentially is, is almost rules-based. That's right. There are many, uh, many interesting techniques here. One of them is to train a, you know, deep neural network end to end to do the thing and then train some, um, you know, more interpretable version of a network. Maybe it could be, um, you know, logistic regression or a generalized additive model or something like this. You train that on the first model to mimic the behavior of the first model. Um, and, Yes, in that way, you can kind of use the deep learning part to get you halfway there, but you don't have to actually deploy that version of the system. You know, in the same way that there's a convergence between the social sciences and, and um, computer science, there's also a convergence between technical roles and business roles, you know, when it comes to mm -hmm. accountability and responsibility with this. And one of the big questions I think leaders in big organizations are having now is, you know, what is the, the degree to which they need to be involved 
um, in 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 these processes in the design of these systems, and and even with black boxes, you know, one of the questions is, you know, what is the appropriate optimum? Like, what are we optimizing for? That 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 that, that is definitely more of a business or leadership type of question than potentially a technical one. Yeah, this is something that I think we're just beginning to see a real change. Um, so often what happens in a business setting is you have some goal, right? You want to maximize engagement without churning people off the platform or whatever it is, right? You have some, or some complex set of things that you want. Then you have to turn those desires into some kind of operationalizable KPI or set of KPIs. Right. Um, and then, you know, you set about optimizing those things and maybe you find out there's some externality like, oh, you know, yes, we were optimizing for engagement, but we were burning our users out because they were too engaged and now they're quitting or you know, whatever it might be. Right. There are all sorts of stories like this. Um, and so now you need to have different KPIs and weight them against each other and things like that. And there is I mean, it's very interesting because we're increasingly moving to a, a model in which the optimization part is done automatically behind the scenes, right? If you're at a company like Facebook, Twitter, Google, whatever, um, rarely are you manually adjusting the rate at which certain types of ads appear. I mean, that can happen, but largely you determine the KPIs and you let the system do its thing. Um, I think what we're starting to see is a shift toward a more indirect model where even determining what the KPIs are is left up to the system. Um, And that seems like very uh, magical and hand wavy, but there's um, there's a set of techniques called inverse reinforcement learning. The basic idea is, well, we haven't defined reinforcement learning, but basically there's this paradigm in AI called reinforcement learning that imagines that essentially every environment is like a video game. You're taking these actions to maximize some score and the actions could be these long, long chains of things that you do and then get some reward at the end. And you're trying to maximize the total amount. Inverse reinforcement learning asks the question of I'm watching someone, I'm observing someone taking actions in an environment, but I don't know what, the score is that they're trying to maximize. So can I, if I just watch someone play chess, can I determine that the objective is to checkmate the king? If I just watch someone play Tetris, can I determine that the objective is to clear the rows and so forth? It's better to have four at once, et cetera. Um, and it's very interesting because we're starting to see this movement um, that really began in academia around using inverse reinforcement learning to think about questions of values. Um, There are a great many things that are very difficult to specify in an operationalizable KPI kind of way, and yet very easy for us to recognize it when we see it. Um, So my my favorite example of of a research project in this space was done um, by a collaborative team across OpenAI and DeepMind. And they wanted to determine whether it was possible to train a robot how to do a backflip. Um, and I love the example of the backflip because it's something that you would immediately recognize if you saw it. Um, 
most of us can't demonstrate it. Um, I, I can't perform a backflip <laughs> and tell the system do it like that. Um, if you give me a you know joystick, I can't make a robot do a backflip because that requires you know manipulating too many of the joints at one time. I wouldn't know how to do that. Um, if you ask me to come up with some kind of score function that would reward the robot based on certain you know rotational velocities, this, that, and the other thing, it would take me hours, you know, maybe if to to come up with something. But if you showed it to me, I would I would recognize it. And so they made this. I think audacious bet, which was, we're going to have this robot um, writhing around randomly, and we're going to show you two of these clips of the robot writhing around randomly, and you're just going to tell us which of those looks more like a backflip than the other one. So if it's kind of wriggling to the right, and that you want it to backflip to the right, you pick that one. Or if it kind of jumps a little bit, then you pick that one, right? And it turns out that after a couple hundred of these comparisons. Um, through this inverse reinforcement learning process, the system can figure out, here's what I think you think a backflip is based on the preferences that you've made, the comparisons that you've chosen between these two video clips. And now I'm going to optimize what I think is in your head. Um, and after just about one hour of this feedback process, uh, this robot is doing these you know, gymnastically perfect backflips and sticking the landing. And to me, that is such an encouraging um, it's it's sort of a hopeful sign that we can extrapolate similar techniques to things, you know, even in, in a social media context, right? You want to see a healthy community if you're Twitter. What does that mean? Well, show me two communities. I'll tell you which one's healthier. Um, it's like an eye and, test. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Um, and so this has been kind of um, a very dynamic area within the theoretical computer science. Um, around AI safety. And I think we're just starting to get to the point now where it's actually the, the rubber is hitting the road and real tech companies, Twitter, um, Facebook, among them, starting to use techniques like this. And I think this is part of a long process that's undeniably going to be a bumpy process, but a long process of moving organizational culture beyond the fixation on you know, defining and measuring KPIs. And I think that's going to be a total transformation. Yeah, it, it, it definitely becomes very relevant where you're dealing with more abstract concepts, like you say, like what a, what's a healthy community? I mean, if you're just trying to maximize profit or churn, you know, in a way, it's like the early days of machine learning where, you know, rather than adjusting simple parameters, you're just, you know, turning knobs in, in the strategy department. But right. if you've got a more nuanced concept of what success looks like for an organization that potentially includes stakeholders and you know um, values and regulation then that's a much more complicated problem to optimize for that's right that's right and i think we are starting to get to a place where um, that complexity is manageable in a way that it wasn't necessarily manageable before and i think arguably some of the problems that we've had recently with social media for example um, can at least in part be attributable to an over-reliance on that which is easily measured um, or that which is easily, easily operationalized. I know Facebook, for example, has written about this surprisingly candidly um, that they were using uh, so-called supervised learning systems, which is kind of a more, uh, a more myopic uh, 
type of a system than a reinforcement learning system. So it, with their supervised learning system, they were using it for the newsfeed. They were using it to determine, um, you know, an event takes place on Facebook. You notify the person about it. Um, and the simple way to do it is to say, you know, let's predict the probability that the user is going to interact with this thing. And if it's over a certain threshold, then we send the push notification. Um, but that has exactly this problem of long-term effects, right? You're optimizing for short-term engagement, but you could burn people out and maybe they turn off notifications altogether or they leave Facebook. Um, and I think there's, there's more going on here than, you know, I, there are larger societal questions than just making Facebook, you know, thrive as a company. But I think to some, to some degree, the interests of Facebook as a company and the interests of the users are aligned in this way that people don't want to get burned out and, and quit. Um, and moving to a subtler model where we don't have to have some specific numerical index where for each post we calculate the probability you're going to click on it and then we just push everything sorted descending by that index um, but can take a kind of a more nuanced kind of multi-objective approach. I think that's ultimately going to be a really good thing. Let's talk a little bit more about reinforcement learning. I, I was intrigued, which I hadn't heard this before, the story about um, B.F. Skinner that you know, mm. that his origin story was really trying to put pigeons inside of, you know, s steampunk smart bombs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it, it, almost like this animated demon spirit, like inside inside technology. It, it was like something out of a science fiction novel. I, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> um, yeah, I, there's this fascinating backstory, I think, where um, reinforcement learning in particular as a subfield of AI has borrowed directly um, from animal training, animal, uh, you know, psychology um, and, uh, you know, behaviorism. So Skinner himself, yeah, as you, as you have noted, there's this completely bizarre um, story where Skinner is uh, hired by the U.S. government during World War II to, he's known as this great Harvard behaviorist who can make pigeons do anything. And so the government says, can you put pigeons inside of bombs and have the pigeon peck at the bomb target in such a way that will actually steer the bomb toward that target. Um, obviously, it's like an, an act of martyrdom for the pigeon. Um, <laughs> Skinner has this passage where he's like, you know, the, the ethics, think, thinking about the ethics are a peacetime luxury. For now, we're just going to decide, you know, whether we can do it. Um, and he was, in fact, successful at doing this, but um, unbeknownst to Skinner, the government was building the atomic bomb, which, uh, let's just say, had a blast radius sufficient that you didn't need to be exceptionally precise in how you know how you steered it. Um, so they ended up not being especially uh, interested in his homing pigeon bombs. But um, along the way, he ended up making a number of really seminal breakthroughs in terms of how you actually train. Uh, in this case, an animal to do something pretty sophisticated using just simple uh, reinforcement, right? Like giving, giving food at the right time. Hmm. How do you actually manage to develop or instill this really complex behavior? Um, and so a lot of the insights that came out of Skinner's work on these bombs ended up on the one hand, launching the kind of animal training industry. So all of the 
you know, impressive pigs and monkeys and parrots and so forth that you would see in films and on TV commercials, like in the 60s, 70s and so forth, all came out of his former graduate students, like creating this entertainment startup on the side. But I guess more importantly for our purposes, um, there is this very seminal idea called reward shaping or just shaping um, that says, if you want to achieve some really complicated behavior, you are going to need to begin by rewarding simple approximations of that behavior. Um, in Skinner's case, there was a, a moment where he was trying to get one of his pigeons to like bowl a tiny wooden bowling ball down a little miniature bowling alley. Um, and how do you reward that? Well, you start by just feeding the pigeon for walking near the ball or interacting with the ball at all. And then if it hits the ball towards the bowling pins, you give it a little bit of a reward and you kind of create this moving target um, that indicates to the animal that it's on the right track. Um, and then you slowly make the rewarded behavior more and more complicated and you get to a place that you could have, you know, if you just put a pigeon in, in a bowling alley and say, I'll feed it when it scores a strike, you're going to be you know, waiting forever. It'll have no this idea. is the sparsity of rewards problem, right? That's exactly it. Exactly. Yeah. How how is that different from getting a robot to learn backflips? Uh, I mean, you know, just by writhing around randomly. Like, what 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 was the the insight that they essentially took from that research and designing that experiment to be so effective? That didn't take, you know, the the entire history of the world to to get there. Yeah. Well, I would say the key insight in the backflips paper is. The idea that the feedback has to be um, kind of incremental in a loop. So what happens is that it gathers a little bit of information about what it thinks you think a backflip is. Um, but it then has to go and actually train a little bit. So initially, if you just saw... 200 clips of random writhing, um, that might not be enough for it to know exactly what a backflip looks like. So it has to be incremental. So you can actually think of this as a form of reward shaping in a way. So it starts kind of just wriggling around and it starts to get some sense that maybe, okay, you want it to be moving to the right. And then it'll go off in the background for you know a few minutes and optimize toward that objective, right? So it, it has to figure out on its own what are the joint, you know, angles and the torques that I have to apply to my, you know, ankle and knee and blah, 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 to actually do that. And then it comes back to you and says, okay, now between these two different versions of me trying to achieve that previous thing, which one of these is closer? Right. Um, and so it incrementally starts to get more and more like the thing that you want. And it's a kind of a, a magic process, right? You start in seemingly um, from just the most meager uh, uh, hint of what you want, and then you slowly start to get to something. You know, it's it's to almost like bracketing, you know, like or, the, or that Bayesian experiment where you just, you know, throw a ball anywhere on a table, and, and then with time you get it closer to an approximation of the right answer. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it's quite, uh, it's quite something to see this this process actually start to take shape. Of course, um, shaping is a very, 
guess, dangerous technique, I might say. You know, it's really hard to design the incentives that will get the system to do what you want. And, you know, reinforcement learning has decades of horror stories um, of various uh, systems, you know, exploiting loopholes in their shaping rewards. Um, it's something that every researcher has, uh, you know, st- their own war stories. But video games are a great example of, of how essentially they've been weaponized, you know, to keep people engaged. Well, yes, that's right. Um, so there are, I mean, you can think of that as a, its own version of an alignment problem where um, the the game and the game designer are in alignment. The game is is achieving what the designer wants, but the designer may not want the same thing that you want as the player. Um and I think it's very interesting. Um, you know, we're starting to see, for example, tech companies like Facebook using the exact same um, algorithms and the exact same models that uh, DeepMind, for example, used in their Atari playing system. Um, they developed the system using uh, a model called the DeepQ network that was able to play Atari games at superhuman level. And this is exactly the same architecture that Facebook uses to determine when to send us notifications at just the right time. Um, so there is this very um, fascinating and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what to make of it, but there, the video game has become this kind of archetypal way of thinking about these sorts of interactions. And the, the systems honed in the world of video games now get applied to us. So if you are a leader in a big organization, not necessarily a big tech organization, but you work in insurance or retail or banking, what values do you think need to guide you as you start to encounter these systems in in, in the platforms that your organization builds and, and runs? Um, what questions should you be asking? I think there are several questions. Um, the first to me is, do the training data really reflect the situation that your system is going to find itself in, right? Mm-hmm. So we talked a little bit about, you know, if you just grab some photographs off the newspaper, um, there's a famous example of a face data set that was gathered from newspapers in the late 2000s. And uh, only much later did an analysis reveal that it was like a significant percentage of all the images were George W. Bush. Um, so unless you're secretly dis- trying to build a George W. Bush detector, um, that might not be the data set that, that you want to go with. Um, but a lot of things like that are um, surprisingly common, and they can be very subtle. So, for example, Google um, was doing an analysis, a kind of an after-the-fact analysis of one of their image recognition systems. And the analysis determined that the uh, something being read was intrinsic to its categorization of something as a fire truck. Um, that seems reasonable from a North American point of view where fire trucks are almost uniformly red. Um, in the UK, I think they're mostly red and something striped. Um, but in Australia, they're in many cases often white or in Canberra, they're neon yellow. Um, and so a system that is developed at a company in the US using a model that's only seen American fire trucks might not be safe on the road in Australia where fire trucks don't look like that. Um, so this question of does does the data really reflect the environment that this is going to be in? Um, it's, a, it's a deceptively simple sounding question, um, but it's a very fundamental issue. 
You see the same thing also with computational linguistics. If you train a model based on some text that you scraped off the internet in 2016, and then you deploy it in 2017, the accuracy is going to go down. And if you keep it in production until 2018, 1920, it's going to go down more and more and more because people talk in a different way. The things they're talking about are different. The turns of phrase they're using are changing. Um, and so that's another way, right? You could have this temporal dimension where the training data cease to accurately reflect the reality of what's happening in the world. So I think that's, that's step number one. Um, that's really the starting point. And I think, you know, a great example of that is the pandemic. I mean, so much training data that existed in the pre-pandemic world may not necessarily apply to the world that we're moving into now. That's right. That's right. And the faster you can realize um, that those old models don't apply, I think the, the better off you'll be. Um, there was a, a story of a tech company, uh, name, name Redacted, uh, that found their advertising metrics uh, starting to plummet. And they couldn't figure out what was going on. And it turned out that their system had, uh, there had just been a new version of iOS. And they were including the version of iOS that the user was running as a feature into their ad network. Just because they figured, well, just put everything in as a feature. Why not? And their system had identified basically the, the phenomenon of early adopters. And it said, oh, suddenly there's a bunch of people that are running the new version and they are into tech, they're you know, more affluent, they're more interested in these X, Y, Z topics. Um, and it started targeting this pool of ads to people running you know, iOS 14. But a week later, the people running iOS 14 aren't necessarily the early adopter demographic anymore. And so those assumptions are getting eroded you know, every day that goes by. There are many, many cases like this, and I think it's there are automated things that we can do, right? To try to, as you and I were discussing, develop kind of a calibrated notion of uncertainty and all of these things like that. But there's also, you know, no substitute for good old fashioned human oversight, right? Like I think about the, uh, um, the idiom, all bets are off, right? So that idiom reflects this idea that there are certain events that can change the context of something such, so much that like all the probabilities we were assigning to it are void, yeah. right? And that's the kind of thing where we, you know, a, a human intuition around that is really uh, invaluable. Even those examples you gave, they, they, they also raise this other issue that, you know, with time, it's not just going to be a few isolated systems, ad targeting, algorithmic news feeds, but all of these learning algorithms essentially stacked on top of each other. Mm -hmm. So you end up with this almost, you know, Baroque cathedral of, of learning systems pulling different data sets and 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 yes. you could you could look on the outside and say, wow, this is a, an incredibly sophisticated learning organization. But is it just the sum of the parts, or do we get a new level of complexity by all these systems and interacting with each other? Um, you, there's absolutely kind of an emergent level of complexity, um, and I think there's there's an open challenge to the research community. There has not yet been a lot of work done. There's some early work being done, but there, there's not a lot of work being done in kind of multi-agent systems. So oftentimes that, you know, if you're playing an Atari game, uh, you take the environment as static. It's not yeah. adapting to your strategy. You don't have a, a rival that's going to um, be predicting your own behavior and adapting to you. Um, often in traditional reinforcement learning, you don't, you don't assume that the agent can modify itself in any substantial way, but 
Uh, and you don't assume that its behavior can modify the environment in any way. <laughs> but, you know, to use your example of the pandemic, there is this really wild feedback loop that happens where if you are running a very well-respected pandemic model and your model says that, you know, millions of people are going to die, that will cause people to behave more conservatively and potentially your prediction may be invalidated by the very fact of the prediction itself. Or conversely, you predict no one's going to die, then everyone goes out and goes to holiday parties and then more people do start to die. And in both cases, the actual machine learning model is unbeknownst to itself, essentially part of this feedback loop with the world where people are using the prediction to change their behavior. And then that changes the, the data that's getting fed back into the model, right? So these things can become very complex. You know, so I guess lastly, I mean, to be an effective 21st century human, do, do we need the kind of intellectual chops to be able to understand and interrogate a multi-agent complex system? I mean, I, 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 I worry that even you know, today, very few people in organizations understand the complexity end-to-end -end of their own systems. And, and so, you know, um, aside from the rise of maybe, you know, high-powered lawyers, you know, who've got computer science degrees, I, I wonder how much agency we're going to have in, in the future uh, about not just building a world that's more automated, but, but making sure it is aligned to the values we have. Yeah, I think that's a that's a a critical question. So I think, you know, to my mind, there, there are two components there. One is actual technical literacy. Um, and that's, a, that's part of what I see my role um, as raising awareness around these issues and, and kind of pedagogy of, of actual machine learning uh, 101 for, for non-technical readers. Um, if you're a lawyer, if you're a judge, um, if you are kind of a medical diagnostician, you may have thought that you were not entering into a technical career. You know, imagine someone who's been a judge on the bench doing pretrial arraignments uh, for 25 years. Suddenly, you start getting these algorithmic risk assessments that are telling you this person is an eight out of 10 to commit a nonviolent crime in, in the next two years, blah, blah, blah. Should you give them parole? Whatever it might be. Suddenly, you now need a kind of intuition of, okay, is there something about this person where they're out of the distribution? I shouldn't take this model's prediction seriously, whatever that might be. So I do think that as machine learning in particular makes contact with all of these different fields, um, having a bit of a technical intuition is just part of being a 21st century citizen, like it or not. I think, I think developing a little bit of that fluency is, is critical no matter what profession that we're in. Um, and then I think at a larger scale, um, if we assume for the sake of argument that the technical part of the alignment problem is purely scientific and it gets solved and, you know, we wake up and it's 2030 and we have these magical machines that will always do exactly what you want and what you mean for them to do. Um, well, that still leaves us with, I think, as you highlighted this question of governance. Who gets a seat at that table? Um, who gets to decide uh, what values these systems will be aligned with? Um, and that is very much a, you know, an age-old, non-technical non, non -technical 
problem of of good governance, good society um, that people have been thinking about for hundreds of years. But I think those questions are going to stay important, and if anything, just get more important as these systems get more and more powerful. We're really going to have to think about uh, what it means to to oversee them well and and whose values are they being aligned with. I think that's that's going to stay a critical question. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Thank you.